Hello everyone, welcome to the Melting Pot podcast. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is as a result of my hunger for optimizing business performance, scaling up organizations, corporate culture, customer addiction, building high-performing teams, along with a few other obsessions along the way. I've spent the last several years working for and with some of the most successful top-performing companies in the world. And this podcast is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a high-quality business and live a more fulfilling life. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find more information on today's episode and other topics at dominicmonkhouse.com. Today, I was joined by Les McEwen, and Les is a serial entrepreneur. He's now started 42 businesses. He's an author of four books, and he runs his own coaching consulting business called Predictable Success. Les's book, Predictable Success, is sensational. He, during the course of his business life, he made notes of repeating patterns he saw, and he was able to turn that into a framework suggests that businesses go through at any one point a business will be in one of seven life cycles and he can really bring some clarity and understanding to stress and tension and frustration that that often business owners have where what was fun now becomes hard work and what do you do how do you self-diagnose that problem and, and solve it and particularly he talks about the visionary operator and processor, those three personality types that are going to be in your leadership team, maybe even in your founder, the founders, and how they need to learn to adapt their behavior and become synergists. So we talk about those two concepts, which are the sort of core tenets of his, his first two books, talk briefly on what's in his second two books and what else he's learned along the way. A great conversation with Les today. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Hi, it's Les McEwen here, founder and CEO of Predictable Success. I'm here in beautiful Washington, D.C. And Les, what does Predictable Success do? Predictable Success is my phrase to describe the peak of a life cycle that every single organization goes through. So my life's work has been in uncovering, not making up, but uncovering what the path is that every organization goes through. I thought it was about what the path is that every business goes through. But I discovered after writing four books on the topic that, well, other people uh, made it clear to me that all of these principles, the principles in the predictable success model, actually apply to any organization, for-profit, not-for-profit, you know, kids reading group, anything, any group of two or more people trying to achieve common goals. They can go through up to seven stages, three growth stages, one peak stage, which is the one I call predictable success, and then three decline stages. And I help owner management teams, senior leadership teams identify two things. One, where are they on the life cycle? Two, where do they want to go? And then I work with them to get from point A to point B. Does anybody ever not want to go to predictable success? Yes. And that's one of the single most important takeaways. And I try to get there really quick with most people because there are seven stages in the life cycle. If you just think of an upturned arc. Go on, tell me what they are now and then that be sure so our seven stages are uh, we start with a there are four difficult stages by the way three stages that feel really good but one of those is an illusion so what we're going to see is there are only two stages you want to be in and you do, it doesn't have to be the apex which is where we started with the question so stages real quickly are 
first stage is one of the four difficult stages. I call it early struggle. These days it's called the startup phase. Although we've done a ghastly thing to people in that we've imbued the whole concept of a startup with this sort of aura of holiness. It's actually a horrible <laughs> stage to be there. I've been there literally 42 times, literally. I uh, started 42 businesses myself. It's a ghastly place to be. That's why I call it early struggle. The only strategy for a startup, stop being one. So if you're one of the one in five, 80% of all new ventures fail in the first three years, if you're fortunate enough to be one of the one in five that make it through, you get to the second stage, which is the first of the really nice stages, the first growth stage. I call it, I've got a very technical name for this stage. I call it fun <laughs> because that's what it is. It's fun. It's mostly fun because it's not early struggle anymore. Early struggle is all about finding a profitable, sustainable market. Now we've found it and we can mine it. So a tiny little market share which technically, it's actually a very specific number. Our market share is 2% of the square root of squat. It's just nothing. You know, we can't help but sell. We sell like crazy and we grow and we have fun and we make it up as we go along. And the word we say most in fun is yes. We say yes to anything. Doesn't matter what the client or customer asks. Yes, we can do that. So we say yes and then make it up afterwards. And we reach Friday nights, righteously exhausted, hands on our knees, but feeling Holy cow, how did we do that? That was such fun. <laughs> we have our challenges, of course, but we grow through fun. And it is fun until it isn't. And the point at which it isn't is when we fall into the third stage of the growth stages, which I call whitewater. And whitewater is a natural outgrowth of fun. What happens is we just say yes to everything, then make it up. And we're highly successful and we over-please our clients and customers and they adore us so word of mouth is strong and we grow and we grow and we grow. And every day we just add a layer of complexity to the point where at some stage we can't come in and make it up every day anymore. It's just too complex. There are too many product offerings, too many service offerings, too many people, too many locations, too many clients. We've got to start maturing. We've got to start putting some systemic systems and processes in. We will have had little systems and processes, mini processes in place to keep us out of jail and fun, but not really enterprise-wise, nor should we have had. That would have just slowed us down. So Whitewater is the first of the major existential moments in the development of an organization because for the very first time, there's a clash of culture. Uh, during early struggle and fun, we've got just two types of people in the organization, the visionary, who has the vision, makes it happen, and a series of operators. These are people who just go out there and make the visions, the visionary's vision actually happen. They go through brick walls, they make things happen. Now, for the first time in Whitewater, we got to bring in at senior leadership level uh, somebody who's, I call a processor. Their mind is about systems and processes. And I usually start working with organizations at that stage because that creates a massive cultural clash, which can often feel like it's threatening the very existence of the organization. And this brings us all the way back to your first question, which is, at that moment, at that existential moment where typically at this point it's still the original founder owners, that group's sitting around looking at what's just happened. They were very successful for many years. Then things got sort of icky and they started to make mistakes because they'd hit white water. Now we brought one or more of these processors in and it has actually got worse. Now we're not just making mistakes, we're having to codify them. And there's a big decision to be made at that point, which is, do you want to press through to the next stage, to the apex, predictable success? Because if you do, we've got to find a way to make these three roles, these three uh, leadership types work together. That's the secret, the visionary operator process are learning to work together. Or do you want to do a totally equally valid thing 
which is to say to pot with that, I couldn't be bothered. That was fun was fun. Let's go back to fun and just decide to be a boutique, smaller organization with a cap on growth and say, we're just going to visionary operators, processors. We can hire them as external contractors, minimize the impact internally and just stay in fun. And many people that I work with decide to do that. I've decided to do that. I work in fun. I've been in predictable success many, many times. But my consulting company, I'm not trying to make it Bain & Company or McKinsey. I'm in fun. So just to really quickly finish off, and then we can talk about the detail. If you choose to get into predictable success, we've got a visionary operator and processor. And what I discovered is if you just leave those three alone, what will happen is you'll get into a visionary versus processor struggle because the operators don't want to go to meetings anymore. They don't take part in it. And so the visionaries and the processors end up arguing. If the processors win, we begin to decline. They start to over-process the organization and it falls into the first of the decline stages, which I call treadmill. And it's really just a mirror image of whitewater, whitewater. We were under-processed for the first time. Treadmill, we're over-processed for the first time. We've all seen it. There's nothing ethically wrong with it. You can get over-processed. The good news is we can self-diagnose If the visionary screams enough, we make some changes. We stop asking people to fill in 13 fields in an online form just to get an initial appointment. We stop fretting about, is every page in the website HTML5 compliant? We begin to think, does our website look really, really good? And we back up into predictable success. But if we don't make that change, if we don't de-emphasize systems and processes when we're in treadmill, we will eventually slide into what I call the big rut. It's the last stage but one. And the big rut is a long, slow decline into irrelevance. It's just, it takes often generations. Microsoft is in the big rut. General Motors is in the big rut. We could mention a ton of businesses are in the big rut. And the big rut is the one that's an illusion because it feels lovely. Everybody's just sitting around moving the deck chairs on the Titanic. And, you know, customers are just a pain in the neck. If we didn't have to deal with them, life would be perfect. And it's become self-filtering. At that point, the visionaries have all left. The operators have all left. The balance sheet is massive because we've been in predictable success. We had a boatload of money. We've been in treadmill. You can make a boatload of money there. So we're not disappearing anywhere soon. Uh, Harvard University, great example. It's been in the big rut for almost 100 years, but it's got $33 billion in near cash. It's not going away anytime soon, but it's sliding slowly into complete irrelevancy. And the issue is, the key distinction is, in treadmill, we can self-diagnose In the big rut, we've lost the ability to self-diagnose. We like it like this. So there's no way out of the big rut. And eventually, you will hit the final stage, which I call death rattle, where something happens. Everybody goes, oh, look, something's happening. But all we're doing is putting the poor old zombie organization to bed. And you may recall Kodak a couple of years ago ended up going through all of that. Used to be way in predictable success. Owned something they called film. Should have owned something called imaging. Was in the big rut for a long time and then got sold off for patents. I think RIM, the BlackBerry manufacturers, are undoubtedly there at the moment. So that's the arc, and that's a long way of saying, no, you don't have to go to predictable success. There's some, there's a lot to be said for staying in fun, but you've got to accept you lose out one key thing. You can't scale in fun. You can only scale in predictable success. So if you want to scale, you have no option but to go to predictable success. And so then you've got to go back to purpose to say what's the point of this organization? If it's to have impact, then your purpose would drive you through to predictable success because you need to scale and if it's having personally a nice life then fun seems like a good place to be correct and it was one of the things that brought me uh, the realization that these principles apply anywhere not just for profit organizations and when i moved from the uk from belfast originally 
when I moved here 20 years ago and I started working with the model over here, I started to work a lot with uh, fast-growing churches and other faith-based and cause-based organizations. And that's a classic example. If you've started something up um, that's cause-based, if you want to bring water to you know, parts of Africa or you want to you get rid of malaria, you're driven to scale because that's how you make that happen. But there are a lot of micro-cause-based organizations that just want to work with, you know, single moms under 35 in Kentucky. And they're not driving to scale, so they can stay in fun without the impetus of needing to scale. And as you said, in the commercial world, you can decide, as I've done for myself personally, we were talking just before we started the recording, I like to get in a car every Friday morning and head off to a little beach place I've got, and I can't do that if I'm going to scale a massive organization. I just don't want to be bothered. So I'm resolutely in fun. There's no ethical judgment. It's a question of which do you want to do. Yeah, and it's fun until it's not, isn't it? You know, people haven't thought about, I guess, your your arc of development until they hit white water, and then all of a sudden it's not fun. And then people are thinking, you know, it used to be fun before, what do I do? And I often see that even when they decide that what they're going to need to do is hire a processor, because the visionary and the operators are both sort of process phobic, they hire a processor who isn't the right one for them. Is that something you see as well? Or do you have a sense of what, how they should be making those better decisions? Yeah, there, there are a whole set of dynamics that happen, which add up to the fact that usually, even if you're committed to getting to predictable success, you actually end up having to take at least two shots at it, two and sometimes three shots at making it happen. Because the way it, Whitewater works is this. First time you go into it, there are three stages. Early Whitewater is denial. It's just saying, did we all just get stupid? Could we just stop please screwing up? Why did you do that? Why did you order the wrong raw material? Why did we miss this important meeting? Why did we sign this dumb lease? What's happening is you've hit whitewater and you can't improvise your way to quality every day. But for the first period of time, the visionary and operators who have been very successful up to this point just think people have suddenly got stupid, including them. So there's a period of denial. Then middle whitewater is about making that decision. Okay, I see what's going on. And even if they don't follow the model particularly, and you're quite right, why would anybody be thinking in terms of life cycle stages? And one of the beautiful things I do is I can give people their sight back in seven minutes. I sit with people who are just feel totally blindsided. And all I do is show them the arc and the word whitewater, talk about it for a few minutes, and they get it. That's exactly where we are. So first time around, middle whitewater is about making the decision. Do we want to go back to predictable success? And then the third late whitewater is about making, if you've decided to go to predictable success, it's about making the very hard choices. And there are an enormous number, or an enormous number, there are three really hard choices to make. One is that typically first time in, you do bring in the wrong processor. So what do you do when you need a processor? You do the, you know, what any normal person with an intellect would do. You go to a larger organization that has these processors in there with lots of systems and processes and probably haven't ever worked in any other environment. Bring them in. They come in just puffed out as subject matter experts. And when they arrive, they don't think this business is in whitewater. They look around after a week or so, they think, God damn it, they're an early struggle. They're dying. How did these idiots ever succeed? It's just, it's just chaos. It's like the Wild West out here. But all will be well. I am here. I will rescue it. Now, of course, they don't 
utter those words because those are career limiting, but that's the sort of sense that's going on. So we get people who have never known any other background and don't get it that this entrepreneurial zeal, the drive of the visionary, the get it done mentality of the operator are vitally important. They begin to demean them and you get this culture clash. So there's that aspect of it. And, and that's where it sometimes takes a second go to actually let that person go because it's never going to be a fit. And then go back out again, you know, go back to fun for a couple of years, get your breath back. And then next time out, it's usually the visionary doing this is, okay, let's let's get somebody who is, a, yes, a processor, but they at least understand smaller businesses. They've got an entrepreneurial mindset that they're in my terminology and my uh, model. They're true processors and not bureaucrats because you need a processor, not a bureaucrat. Just to complete the picture, what is actually even more painful for the visionary to get over is that you can't get out of whitewater and into predictable success without losing at least one, often two or three, of your highest performers during fun. People that you went to battle with, big dog operators who worked all the hours God sent, missed their kids' holidays, cut their own vacation short, missed out stuff at the weekend, worked themselves to the bone to make this business what it is, a number of those big dog operators will not want to go to predictable success and will do anything to avoid doing it. And they'll try to self-harm the growth of the organization. And that need to separate for a visionary owner to sit down and say, I love you. I'm the godfather to two of your kids but you don't want to come where we're going and that's obvious. So why don't we find you something else that you will enjoy? And that's a very painful part of moving to predictable success. There are just some people built for fun and they can't abide it. They feel, you know, the first time a hard charging operator is told he or she's got to fill in a spreadsheet at the end of the workday with, you know, whatever their sales targets or God for fan, fill in Salesforce or something like that. <laughs> they would rather open a paper clip and stab themselves in the eye. This just feels like, what the hell? Are you, do you not trust me anymore? Come on, boss. I've been doing this for years. I, we've been highly successful. I was your biggest salesperson. I still am your biggest salesperson. What do you mean you want me to fill in forms? I have a job to do. And that aspect of the visionary operator processor clash is equally painful. Yeah. I was just thinking that whole, I see it all the time, people who are contextually successful so that your processor who is in a big company, they didn't put in any of those processes. What they get to do is they get to turn the dial. They get to turn a hundred little dials every day. And so when they turn up somewhere where there are no dials, they don't know enough about, they don't know how to build any of the dials. And I see that all the time. I see it, I see it a lot in sales, actually. So my question, I suppose, is, does the processor, where their, their functional expertise, I suppose it depends on the company and what the company's doing. But I see a lot where you've got a tech founder who's built an amazing thing, is passionate about it, is really the sales guy. And then eventually they have to hire a sales guy to build a sales team. And so they go to that big company and they hire the sales director for the big company. But he's never built a sales team. He's run a sales team, but he's never built one. And then he turns up with Salesforce. And it's just that whole, ah, that's not what we need. Right, exactly right. Uh, and there are two great things in what you've just pointed out, Dom. Uh, let's come back to tech as a separate entity in a moment because it's got its own weird wrinkle, which is really important to be aware of. But including in tech, in all organizations, the big 
you know, the money shot moment for me, oh, it was the same moment. It took me maybe seven years to work it out. Here, here's what I was doing for many, many years from about 19, I'm older than dirt, from about 1988 or so. I had got in my head, as I've said before, I didn't invent any of this. I, I just, because I was a serial entrepreneur, I saw a whole bunch of repeating patterns and I just wrote them down and gave them titles and names. And from about the late 80s, for about 10 years, I had the visionary operator processor roles nailed. And I spent all of my time working with leadership teams who are visionary operators, processors, helping them work out how to not end up with a, this visionary processor clash where the operator just says, hey, I've got a job to do. I'm not sitting in your stupid meeting. You two talk or you four talk, you V's and P's. Just tell me what you've decided. And you end up with the visionary wanting to change the world and, and make the needle move with uh, everything being glass half full and saying yes to everything. And the processor, as you say, just want to make sure I turn the right dial the right direction. And most things start with no and the glass is half empty and there's this clash in there. And I would work with these teams and I'd give them a whole set of tools and there are a whole bunch of mechanical tools that are very useful. And um, life would get much better for them and they'd make much better high quality decisions, which whole area of high quality team-based decision making is really what we're talking about, but that's a discussion for another day. And they would work out how to make high quality decisions together. And then six months later, they'd be back in their corner, scratching in their visionary operator and processor itch. And I moved here to the US in the late 1990s because I knew that there were many organizations who had got to predictable success and stayed there sustainably. And I was missing a part somewhere. I hadn't seen what the missing link was. And I moved over to the West Coast in the San Francisco Bay area in uh, 1999 with the opportunity, a magnificent opportunity to go sit and just observe a bunch of teams in organizations that were in predictable success. Back then, Microsoft, for example, was in predictable success. Team Mobile, which I think is now E something, O2 or something like that in the UK. Uh, American Express, elite parts of the US Army, um, Sun Microsystems. And I found this incredible thing. I saw a fourth style that I hadn't seen operating before. And these teams that were sustainably in predictable success, the individuals, the visionaries, operators, and processors, those three are natural styles. We pretty much come out of the womb, uh, usually with two of those, a leading style and a secondary style. So I'm a VP, I'm a leading visionary and a secondary processor. There's a fourth learn style as a subject of all of my second book, The Synergist, and I called it The Synergist. And that synergist style is something that a few people have in and of itself. There's a few small percentage of people who are natural synergists. They, they work naturally through groups and teams, and they're sort of wallflowers when they're on their own. But what I discovered, the key was, and, and since about 2000, what is it, the core of my work, the key to staying in predictable success is getting every one of the senior leadership team to start with and then build this in all the teams in the organization to learn the synergist style because essentially the synergist says, when I'm in a group environment, I'll put the interests of the enterprise against my need to scratch my visionary operator or processor itch. Instead of sitting here getting frustrated because I'm a visionary and we're not thinking big enough, I'm a synergist, I'll sit here and think what's best for the organization at this moment. And that may well mean that I actually, you know, choke it down and sit and go through this darn spreadsheet for an hour or so. As a processor, I'm sitting there saying, no, we can't make a decision because you haven't let me tell you what's in my 68-page PowerPoint presentation yet. A processor synergist says, well, wait a minute, these are intelligent people. Why don't I just tell them what's in the final slide? And they can ask me questions about the other 67 pages. You see what I'm saying? It's a learned style. And uh, I, over time, discovered that 
It takes between two and four years for a matured adult team to learn the synergist style if they're doing it from scratch and just making it up as they go along. If you're committed to the success of your organization, every time you get in a meeting, you'll learn a little bit more about how to hold back the abrasive edges of your style, uh, lead with the good edges of it, and fill in with something that I call the synergist style, how to think about the good of the enterprise. And the reason it takes two to four years is because we're in meetings, then we go do something else, and we come back into another meeting, and maybe nothing happens in that one. And so it takes two to four years to build these sort of calluses in your hands to understand how to drive the organization with a synergist mindset. And what I discovered is you can teach it in a day and a half. <laughs> I can put, you know, the principles are dead straightforward. Put a bunch of people in a room, ask them to give you a day and a half. And the only reason for the additional half day is to have them come back and reflect on the teaching of the day before and work out how they're going to specifically implement it. And you can synergize a team in a day and a half, assuming that they want to. If you've got people who are unrecalcitrant and don't want to do it, then I can't help that. But if you've got a group of people who are in predictable success and still having visionary operator processor clashes, then the reason is it's a non-synergized team. They haven't learned to move into this sort of sixth gear, this different way of thinking that says, okay, I'm in a group uh, team environment here. Okay, so we're talking about non-trivial stuff. I can fly my visionary freak flag if I want to or operator or processor. But the minute we start talking about non-trivial items, I put the interest of the enterprise ahead of my need to scratch my visionary operator or processor. Rich. Maybe I'm super simplifying it, but is it, is it more than the fact that they've got into learnt behavior? So they've turned up in as a team and they're acting out their roles. They all now expect each other to turn up with 68 page slides and nobody goes, mate, stop doing that. Or is it that, or is it, or is it something else? There's two things. Learned behavior is part of it. The other part of it is the need for endorphin release. And visionaries, operators, processors all get endorphin release from different things. A visionary gets uh, his or her endorphin release at the moment of inception. The minute, you know, uh, I have you done as a little bit of a visionary dump, and I can imagine you in the shower and you have this incredible idea. We're going to launch this product. I, I, the one time you never want to meet with a visionary you work with is Monday morning after they've had a vacation or they've been at a conference because they come back with this massive list of squirrels that we're all going to chase. And that's because they got an endorphin release at the moment of inception. And everything is a little downhill from there on. The actual nitty gritty of making it happen doesn't affect an endorphin release. So a visionary is always lobbing stuff into the pitch got the endorphin released in that. Now it gets incredibly frustrated because it's not been done yet because they think things happen seven times faster than they do. And to get an endorphin release, need to come up with something else. That's why you know you're about to have your meeting hijacked when a visionary you know, moves into a sort of a zombie board state and then stands up. <laughs> you just know that at this point, whatever's next in the agenda, forget that. You know, She's just had an idea. Operators get their endorphin release by getting to the far result to the thing that needs to get done. Nothing else. They don't get the endorphin release. People think that operators, hard charging operators, get an endorphin release by knocking down walls and being rude and, and upsetting people. They actually don't. It's because those things are all in the way of getting the thing done. Right? And for a processor, and this is where the culture clash happens in Whitewater, a processor gets the endorphin release from doing the thing right and they don't actually really care what the thing is. Whatever you've hired them to do, their endorphin release comes from doing it right. And if that means it's going to take five times longer, then so be it. So you can tell, you can rush into your new controller's office, tell him that you've got to have the, uh, uh, what we call over here, the accounts receivable 
list because you got to collect some money. And if he runs the accounts receivable list on the last Thursday of a month at 10 a.m., and this is the last Wednesday of the month at 3.45, you're not getting it because he wants to do it right. And he'll do it tomorrow morning at 10 a.m. And you can threaten anything and you'll get it tomorrow at 10 a.m. And so it's those two aspects, I think, are a very strong reason for what happens. One, as you say, learn behaviors. But secondly, you're just getting dwarfing releases from totally different things. Uh, so it's learned behavior and also that self-awareness of what drives me and then an ability to have a conversation about that in the team. A good example of where that you know has practical implications is in fun, two things are hugely rewarded and not just possible, but very much rewarded. One is that the visionary can have the organization pivot in a moment's notice. You know, you think about a shoal of fish, you know, they're going along like this and then they see something. So they all turn like that. And because during fun, we quite rightly are saying yes to anything. You know, let's say we were a successful shoe manufacturer. We started up, we've got a funky name for ourselves. We've got a little boutique store down in uh, the West End in London, and we're doing really well. And the visionary one day, because somebody asks them about it over the weekend, decides we're going to make belts as well, right? Transferable skill, it's leather, right? We did shoes, let's do belts. And they come in on Monday morning, and the organization can do that sort of fish flip and pivot and do that. Uh, so that's not only possible, it's rewarded. You want to scale in predictable success, that will pull the fabric of your organization apart. Now, what you can do is you can build systems and processes that will allow you to be highly flexible, but it can't be on a whim. It's got to be based on the alignment on where we're going. You can't have the visionary founder, typically founder owner, just deciding overnight we're doing something completely different. If it's part of a structured approach to the market where we remain flexible, that's one thing. And so I, when I'm coaching visionary uh, founders, I make it clear to them, if you're absolutely convinced you want to go to predictable success, here's the first thing we're going to do. We're going to find you a sandbox somewhere where you can fly your visionary freak five. Otherwise, you're going to go crazy, right? <laughs> so do you want to start mentoring maybe a few smaller businesses? Do you want to go start something up that you know that you can work with on the side? Do you want to invest a bit more time? I see you're interested in theater. Do you want to invest a bit more time in that? Uh, but just let's find something so that you're not going crazy because that's what happens with most uh, visionaries. And the other uh, one that's much more difficult to resolve, and we talked about it very, very briefly, is that in fun – all of these styles, the visionary operator processor, even the synergist, have got good sides and the dark side. Good visionary is a visionary. A dark side visionary is an arsonist, just going around setting fire to stuff all the time. You know, visionary is good. Arsonist is not, not so good. Operators are great. Hard-charging operators, they just get things done. The dark side of an operator is that they can turn into mavericks. I don't want to come back to the office. I don't want to sit in your stupid meeting. don't want to read your damn email. I'm certainly not filling in your stupid report. I have a job to do. And here's the thing. Not only is there plenty of room for a maverick operator in fun, they actually can really make the business grow fast. They're just out there getting it done, bringing in business, throwing it over the transom. Okay, guys, you you know I've, I've killed one. You skin that. I'm off to get six more. But in the move through Whitewater into predictable success, it's unlike the visionary one where we can give them a sandbox to do it. Most operators can't. Maverick operators can't make the transition. They just will not, cannot be subject to systems and processes. Uh, they feel it as a personal loss of confidence in them by their visionary colleagues. And so they just can't make the transition. Need to go and find another organization at that earlier stage where they can go have more fun. 
where they'll be absolutely at their happiest and, you know, accept the fact that we're focusing on salespeople because it's easy to see it, but it happens in all parts of the organization. You know, I'm a world-class salesperson and I'm not going to work somewhere where I have to invest four hours every night filling in, you know, our proprietorial software. That doesn't work for me. I want to be with customers and clients. Uh, so let me go and do that. And because if you don't take them out of the organization, they turn toxic often. They do. They turn into terrorists and they're just going around the organization saying, these idiots have turned up. It used to be, look how much fun it used to be. <laughs> Yeah, And now it isn't. These guys are the fun police. Correct. Because one of the things that happens in fun, uh, we talked earlier about the fact that all of these stages have got um, three subsidiary stages, early, middle, and late. Uh, from middle to late fun, what happens is we're saying yes to everything and somehow delivering on it, you know, and we do it by just putting massive effort towards whatever needs done next. But as a result, what happens is we build what become the myths and legends of the business. We do things that we immediately start telling stories about, and those stories grow. And of course, they, you know, like any stories, they get a little embellished, but they're still at the core are true myths and legends. You know, you remember that time? You know, we flew up to Dundee, didn't think we had a chance in hell of getting that piece of business. Didn't even know where to start. You remember we sat there, got coffee fueled, and you started working on that PowerPoint. We went in the next morning, couldn't prop our eyes open with matchsticks. And then we give that incredible presentation. You remember that? So we, we build these myths and legends, rightly so, because we do extraordinary things and fun with, you know, we're really punching above our weight. But what happens when we hit white water, and if we're not careful, it can happen subsequently as well, those become performance benchmarks. Instead of stories about the good old days, it's why can't we just do it like that? Why can't we go back to being like that? And we begin to talk as if we have lost something, which of course we have. We've lost the fact that we're no longer, you know, in, in human terms, a highly flexible 13, 14-year-old kid who can bend themselves silly. And we're starting to get older and, you know, things are a little bit more creaky and all that sort of stuff. Sure. But what happens is that the late fun stage it gets this sort of mythic aura of being a time when everything was so good. And we should somehow go back to that. And trying to persuade senior leadership teams, particularly if it's still the original founding team, that predictable success is not fun plus is a big part of what I do. It's important to see that it's not fun plus. You know, Jim Collins has got a great phrase he uses in some of his books about having the right people on the bus. And uh, he's 100% right. You know, you're the best bus in the world. If you know the right people in the bus, you're not going to get where you want to go. The limitation on that, one aspect, uh, which is a limitation, is that here's your bus that you've painstakingly filled with the right people doing all the right things. And it goes into whitewater, which is sort of like going into a tunnel. And the vehicle that comes out the other side in predictable success, it's not the same bus. It's not even a bus anymore. It's like a drone or something, you know. <laughs> And the statistical likelihood that the exact same people who were the right people on the bus and fun are the right people to be on the bus and predictable success is zero. It's just not going to happen. You will need to retool your team. And sometimes that's even the visionary founder. You know, there have been many occasions, many occasions, where I've worked with a visionary founder and he or she has concluded, sometimes after hitting Whitewater more than once, okay, I think the right thing to do, either because we've got a cause that I believe in or just because I think it's the right thing to do, is for us to go to predictable success. But do you know what? I'm not the person to lead it. It's time for me to step aside. I'll become our chief innovation officer or chief culture officer or maybe even just go do something else. And 
uh, sit on the board and let's get somebody else in to be the CEO. Because that shift, a large subset of the, of the material I produce for my coaching clients is all about moving from founder to CEO. And that's a, that's a different mindset. I, I do, folks give me their card quite a lot whenever we begin a conversation about something. And they say to me, I want to scale. And they give me the card and it says, so-and-so and so-and-so founder. And, and I said, well, the first thing that we're going to do is dead easy. We're going to take that word founder off. And you're never going to use it again because it's a limitation to scale. I said, what? what? What do you mean? So it just means you're God and you can get to do anything you want. So, yes, of course you're the founder. Why, why do you need to tell people that? You know? Use it if you want to roll out with clients and customers and impress them. Yeah, we'd like to have dinner with our founder. That's fine. But you want to walk around internally playing your founder card, you won't scale. Yeah. That's another culture clash, isn't it? That maybe you've got two or three founders and now you've got a leadership team of six people. And do they treat each other equally? Or is there still this founder status that somehow gives people the right to some sometimes toxic behavior? You know, I, I get to turn up and change the direction of this department by 90 degrees because I'm the founder. Correct. You know, that bullshit will just stop them scaling if they're at the wrong place in their life cycle. Yeah. And, you know, there's not a darn thing wrong with saying, you know what? Hey, I don't know about you, Mr. Co-Founder, but I like it like this. So, again, one of the side things that I said, and this is really, really glib. It's also a gender specific, which it shouldn't be. But I said to people, do you want to be king or do you want to be rich? And both of those are relative terms. But you want to get to come in in the morning and just do whatever you want to do, that's fine. There's not a darn thing wrong with it. Fun is perfect for that. So stay there. And you can actually do very well financially. You can do really great things. But if you want to truly scale, if you want to, and if you want to build something that goes beyond you and be a legacy, then you, those behaviors are going to be the highest degree of uh, the most problematic thing. Now, there's nothing wrong, particularly where you've got more than one founder, you've got a set of co-founders, of having a founder group that meets as founders with a clear delegated set of responsibilities and an ambit, an area that they talk about. So that might be stuff like, what do we do with our excess income? How do we allocate you know, resources? Stuff like that, that a founder team could and should uh, resolve to themselves. But if you're talking about just saying, you know what? I was there in the garage on day one, so you all just do what I tell you. Like I said, so knock yourself out. If that floats your boat, do it. But it's going to be a huge barrier to scale, almost insurmountable one. And it does remind me of one other thing that we mentioned briefly in the way through that I said it would come back to. There's something that there's one thing that happens in tech, which is very specific, and if our listeners are in the tech industry, it'll be worthwhile just pointing it out. Tech comes along with a dysfunctional, usually comes along with a dysfunctional team right from the get-go for this reason that organically an organization needs a visionary and a bunch of operators to get started and succeed. That's what you need in early struggle and fun. And you do not need processors, not only that, they will hold you back, they will slow your growth. But most tech startup teams have a very strong processor right there. One of the co-founders is typically the person with the idea, you know, the literally the ability to code this darn thing out and turn it into a reality. And in tech, one of the things we see all the time is that genius processors are mistaken for visionaries. Genius processors are mistaken for visionaries. So people, there are people who sit there, the brain the size of a planet, and they can tell you, you know, these incredible details about market size, reach, product capability, competence, and they sound like they're savants. And they're, they are the clever, very genius processors, but they get mistaken for visionaries and they're not. 
Uh, and what that ends up meaning is they're really good at one thing and they have a, they can have either a flop or a massive success out of the gate. And then everybody thinks they're, of course, they're a genius visionary and they're going to repeat this and repeat it and repeat it when in fact they're a genius processor. And that's all they got. Uh, I'll give you a good, a good example. Of, I think of a couple of guys that saw this and did all the right stuff uh, were the Google guys. Uh, I think they're genius processors. And they recognized they needed at some point to bring in, and it ended up being uh, Eric uh, Schmidt. Everybody talked about him being the adult in the room, you know, uh, adult supervision. In essence, they were bringing in a, a genuine visionary v, to take the organization and build a vision. That's not uncommon in tech. That, and you do typically see exactly that model, a startup team of three in tech. One is the hyper genius processor who has got the actual idea and who, by the way, usually irritates the other two enormously because he or she is anal. Uh, the operator who just wants to ship, just want to ship, just want to ship. I don't care what state this thing is in. We've got to ship. And then the visionary who's out there, you know, making sure that everybody understands we're going to change the world. And that's how we get our mentioning finance. And why don't we buy some air on chairs? We'll have even better ideas if we sit in good comfort. Uh, so that team is uh, very common in tech. And it's it's got built-in dysfunction. Doesn't mean to say, uh, clearly, as we look at tech, doesn't mean to say they can't be successful. It just makes it harder. Yes. And often there's no awareness of that so so it's difficult it is it is difficult you've got, to, you've got to, you can't fix anything till you know you've got a problem or you're prepared to accept that there's something that needs fixing correct uh and, you know and one way to approach that is and i talk about a lot in my most recent book uh, do scale is to accept that that sort of a team is better placed to build something and then flip it than it is placed to build something for legacy that's a good team to go come up with the next app to sell to uber or the next product to sell to Google, you know, get it started up, ramp it and sell it. Les, you've mentioned a couple of times a number of your books. What, how many, what are they? There are four books in the canon, so to speak. Predictable Success, the first one, 2010, uh, lays out the life cycle stage, the seven stages. Uh, second book, two years later, called The Synergist, lays out the four uh, leadership styles, visionary operator processors. Synergies. They're actually, those two books together, that's one model, but I just split them into two books because nobody would have bought a book that size. So I was able to split the two out. So Lifecycle and Predictable Success, the styles and the synergies. And then um, thanks to an involvement with an organization, I know you know, the Do Lectures, they asked me to write a couple of books in the last few years on two very specific subsets of what I teach. Do Lead is really going into the leadership styles for people who are not on senior leadership teams. It's how to lead from anywhere in the organization. You don't even have to have a title. You can use your understanding of your leadership style to impact uh, how your organization shows up. And then Do Scale, uh, which just came out uh, a couple of months ago, just did the Audible version, the, the voice-based version, the audiobook in London a few weeks ago. And it came out a few days ago. And Do Scale is very specifically about what it means to scale an organization as opposed to grow it. So there's organic growth and fun, and then we've got our scaling and predictable success. So it goes specifically into that. And in Do Scale, you make a point somewhere which uh, struck a chord with me because it's certainly one of the things that, that I believe to be true, which is that a company will never be better than its leadership team. Yeah, I mean, it may happen that for a period of time, if the leadership team get distracted or you're going to have a little bit of turnover, 
that the rest of the organization can rise to it, but that will always be temporary. And the leadership team has got to set the tone and tenor for everything else. Now, that's very different from saying the leadership team has to do everything. In fact, it's quite the opposite. And in DoScale and my other books and in all of the consulting work that I do, an absolute core tenet is that the leadership team, the senior leadership team, should only be doing what only they can do. And by only doing what only they can do, they become the best leadership team there should be for the organization. I walk into a senior leadership team and I see them doing regularly and consistently stuff that they should not be doing, then I know there's a ways to go to scale. Yeah. And one of the things that I always think of as a transition as well is that there was probably at some point there was a there was a functional specialty that the CEO and there's a point at which they have to hire somebody to do that and not do it anymore. So, you know, like it might have been marketing or it might have been sales or it might have been dev, whatever it was. But at some point, if they can't give that up and hire somebody else to do the thing that used to be their job and that they realize that their job is now CEO, which is a different job, then again, you're just going to, they're going to get stuck. Absolutely correct. If a part of your identity is tied up in being the smartest person on a certain functional area, then you're going to cramp the growth of your team. And, you know, it sounds like you've seen it many times. What ends up happening is two things. One is either they hire in somebody, if it is, for example, marketing, they hire in somebody, they give them the title of CMO, but really they're reporting to the CEO acting as CMO. And of course, if the person that's been hired is anything worth their salt, they're not going to put up with that. They're going to move on at some point. Or secondly, they try really hard to sort of let this person do their thing and don't try to interfere, but they walk around the periphery of the organization just by body language and visual cues, undermining what's going on. Sort of like a little roll of the eyes, you know, oh, we've run out of new, a whole new proposal to operate through the under 25 demographics come from our new CMO and the CEO just sort of gives it a little flutter of the eyelids and maybe a little sigh. <laughs> and that's just killed it, right? You know? Oh, brilliant. Les, knowing what you know now, if you went back in time, what bit of knowledge would you take back and where to? You know, I'm going to give an answer that may not be what you're looking for here, Dom, but I'll give it to you anyway. If I was able to go back in time, I wouldn't want to go back with anything that I have now and sort of seed it in then. I know that there's a bunch of stuff that if I did do that, it would accelerate where I was going and back then and how I was doing stuff. If I was to go back in time, I've loved, it's beginning to sound like I'm coming to a close here, but I'm not. I'll never stop doing what I'm doing. I adore what I'm doing. And I'm so pleased with all of it. I don't mean in a smug way, but if I was to go back in time, I'd just do something completely different. Uh, there was one point in, when I was in my late teens, I had thoughts about being a journalist and I'd probably just, if I was to go back in time, I'd just do something completely different. Oh, that's fab. That's great. And if uh, thinking about your uh, your journey, along the way, you've read a few books. If you had to pick one or two or three books, what, what books have you read that have had an impact on you that you think people should definitely pick up and read? Probably the book that has had the most business type impact on me is uh, by a guy called, became a friend of mine called David Allen. Uh, he wrote a book called Getting Things Done, and it's about basic productivity tools. 
It's a great book in and of itself, but what it did, the way David wrote the book, and it was a great inspiration for me in terms of structure as to how I wrote Predictable Success, but the way David framed the whole concept of personal productivity, the ability to come in and get stuff done, totally revolutionized how I show up. I think of myself as two different people business-wise. There was pre-GTD me, post-GTD me, and it fundamentally changed what I do. And I reread it again every few years. Any others or? You know, that's about it. I'm embarrassed to make an admission. I don't read business books by and large for two reasons. <laughs> One is, um, so we're not record- I don't think we're recording the uh, video here, but right behind me, there's a massive pile of uh, books, but they're mostly biographies of non-business people. And I don't read too many business books for two reasons. One is, to be quite honest with you, I have found that the vast majority of them say all that they need to say in the first three chapters, and I can pick it all up in a summary. But the second thing is, is more a feeling of mine. I'm too scared of reading something brilliant and then thinking six months later, I came up with that. Uh, so, <laughs> what are the biographies? What's the uh, what's the best biography you've you've got on your shelf there? I mean, I've I've had people recommend all sorts of random books. Sure. Uh, recently, just rereading uh, David Nassau's biography of uh, Andrew Carnegie, who I just think is an incredible individual. A new biography of Winston Churchill, a one volume biography that came out a, a couple of months ago. Uh, one on Charles de Gaulle. I like big uh, historic figures. I, I love listening to audiobooks. It's been something that's come new to me recently, particularly go down to the gym. I like to just stick my earpods in and, and work through. I've been, so I've done all of the SARS, uh, the Russian SARS. Uh, that took me about four months. <laughs> I like lives. I like, to, I like to see if I can pull lessons from people's lives. Les, that's fantastic. Thank you very much indeed for giving me your time today from Washington, D.C. My pleasure, Tom. We can uh, take this opportunity for me to issue a mea culpa, and uh, uh, you may decide to put this in or not for our listeners, but um, uh, you should know, dear listeners, that Dom and I met this summer at an event called The Do Lectures, which we've already referenced, and I was just sitting in my favorite spot in uh, Cardigan in this uh, beautiful location where The Do Lectures are held uh, near a fire pit enjoying myself and uh, Dom and his wonderful wife came over and sat beside me and started to talk together and you know exchanged some information he, he then was very gracious and say oh you're Les McKeown you wrote Predictable Success love your book and I asked Dom what he did and he told me about his commitment to scaling and so forth and I said oh well that sounds like a natural we should do something together and he looked at me and said well actually I did ask you to come on my podcast and I said what no you didn't and he said yes I did on LinkedIn and I was so embarrassed, dear listener, that I actually pulled LinkedIn out. I was hoping to discover that he had made a mistake, but I discovered quite the opposite. Yes, there was an invitation from Dom, to which I hadn't even had the courtesy of replying. So it's been my pleasure to come <laughs> and fix that horrible rebuff. And it's been great to be here. Les, thank you very much indeed. You're welcome. Talk soon. Bye. All this information and more can be found at dominicmonkhouse.com forward slash podcast. There you'll find show notes, additional reading and links related to this episode. You can also find my blog and the past editions of the Melting Pot newsletter. The simplest thing to do is to sign up to my subjectively, not crap, once a week newsletter, where I'll update you on what I've been up to, the most interesting articles I've read, and all things relating to scaling up, high-performing teams, net promoter score, company culture, etc. 
social, you can find me on Twitter at Dom Monkhouse and LinkedIn at Dominic Monkhouse. LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me and share your questions and comments. Thanks for listening.